Well, good morning, ACF. Can we celebrate being here together today? You made it, church. Thanks for showing up. Uh, my name is Mason Vinhouse. I'm the worship director here. Every once in a while, they ask me to share something. So today is one of those days. And I'm really excited to share with you guys on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's where we're at today. And I know we always say we're very excited, but I, I, really, I really truly mean it today because this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And it's because it takes us right to the red-hot center of our Christian faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we're talking about today. So in this, this series called Hold Fast, we've been looking at the, the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul, up to this point, he's been dealing with a lot of like, uh, nitty-gritty practical details in, in the church. Like, how do we do church together well? How do we do life together? And he's kind of asking questions like, if Jesus is true, what does that mean about divorce and remarriage. If Jesus is true, what do we think about the gifts of the Spirit and speaking in tongues? If Jesus is true, how do we do vocational ministry? How do we support people in that role? So a lot of, like, practical stuff, but I would say kind of secondary to this primary question, right, of, well, is Jesus true in the first place? And so in, in chapter 15, 15, he gets to that question, and he starts to look at, well, why do we believe in Jesus anyway? So I'm excited to, to look through this chapter with you guys today. Uh, if you're unchurched or dechurched in the room, I'm really excited for you to hear this message. If you're taking that first look, or maybe you're giving the church just one more shot, right? Because this fact right here, this event, what we be believe to be a fact, is like the most important thing you need to understand about Christianity. This is the most important thing you need to get as you're checking out our faith, okay? Is the, the resurrection of Jesus. We put everything on this event, all right? And if you are a Christian in the room, I, I'm excited for you to hear this because, you know, Sometimes we forget what we believe and, and why we believe in it, some of the reasons we have behind it. So I hope this builds up your faith as we talk through this today. So if you guys want to turn to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, you can do that today on your, your phone app or pull up your Bible. Uh, but as you do that, I want to put out just a bit of a disclaimer, all right? See, if you grew up in the church or even just around, you know, Christianity, just kind of, you know, in the, in the milieu, right, we, a lot of us get enough Christianity to be inoculated against it. We get just enough of it to not really feel the strength or the power of it. Like, we know, we know the, the characters and the stories and the concepts, and we have just enough of a shallow familiarity with it that it doesn't feel real. It kind of has this feeling of unreality, like these are fictional characters, often a fairy tale, doing their thing. And so I want all of us, wherever you're at, Christian or not, to shake off that today. Shake off that shallow, superficial familiarity with the scriptures. I, and I don't need you to believe that the Bible is, you know, sacred scripture. You know, we as Christians, we do believe that. But for the purposes of this message, all I need you to do is to treat the Bible like you would any other historical text, like as if it was written by real people about other real people. You don't have to agree with everything that's in it, but let's at least approach it like this is something written by real flesh and blood people about real life stuff. Because it was. Like, like Jesus of Nazareth is a real guy, okay? You don't have to believe everything he claims or says, but you should believe he was a real person. He, you know, he really showed up, he said some stuff, he did some stuff, and it set the world on fire, guys. We're still here 2,000 years later arguing about Jesus, trying to figure out what he was saying. And same thing with, with Paul, uh, who wrote this letter. Like, St. Paul is a massive figure in history, all right? He's not a character in a fairy tale. Like, he writes most of the New Testament, he takes the gospel to Europe, brings the Gentiles into the fold. These are world-changing events that Paul 
does. He's not a, he's not a character in a, in, a, in a fictional story, right? He's a real flesh and blood historical person like you or I, right? So just with that understanding, that perspective, let's dive into this, this chapter. We're going to start at verse 3. Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And we'll take a pause there. So the scholars tell me that what Paul is doing here is, is actually presenting like a formal creed. And they say, we can, we can see this because there's a very like formal structure to it. It looks like something he probably, he probably memorized and was taught. And like that introduction here, for I deliver to you as the first importance, it's a very like formal introduction. So what he's presenting is he's saying to the Corinthians like, look, I didn't come up with this. This was taught to me by the other apostles. And so I, I memorized this. I'm going to recite this to you now, this like formal statement of belief, like a doctrinal statement, all right? So that's what he's presenting to the Corinthians here. Uh, what's cool about this creed is we can actually date this to within like three to eight years after Jesus' crucifixion, so like within a decade, and that's extremely historically early, like that's no time at all within a decade of Jesus' death, and, and why is that important? This is important because some people would like to say, maybe critics about the, the, the resurrection of Jesus would say, this is like a legend, or like a tall tale that developed gradually over a long period of time, right? Like think about our, our tall tales. Like take Paul Bunyan, for example, right? So, so maybe back in the day, there was a guy named Paul Bunyan who was big and strong and burly, did some cool stuff. So people start telling stories about him and they tell more stories and more stories and they embellish, embellish, and embellish. And eventually, Paul Bunyan's a giant, right, with a blue ox. Like, that's the legendary stuff that evolves over time, right? So people want to say that about, about Jesus, right? Sure, he was a good teacher, he inspired this movement, but like the miraculous supernatural stuff, that just came, comes later, right, with the legends over time, over generations, as people keep telling these stories, and they, kept getting, they keep getting further and further from reality, right? Well, the existence of this creed cuts back pretty harsh against that possibility, right? Paul's saying, like, no, I ha we have a creed here, like a formal statement from the church in Jerusalem within a decade that says we believe in the supernatural resurrection of Jesus. This isn't something that evolved over a long period of time. And here's, a, here's another like deeper problem with that kind of thinking is that there's re no reason for the church to even exist if the resurrection didn't happen. You see, the church didn't invent the resurrection. The resurrection created the church. You see that? So imagine you're a follower of Jesus. Like put yourself back there. You're in you know, first century Palestine, you're following him in his earthly ministry. He gets arrested, and he gets executed by the Romans publicly. This is, everybody knows about this, right? Let's say in this scenario, Jesus stays dead. He stays in that grave. What do you do as a follower of Jesus? You pack your bags, and you go home, right? You say, oops, got the wrong guy. I'm going to try and, you know, forget any of this ever happened. You're going to try and put that behind you. And we know this is true, not only because that's what any reasonable person would do, but because this happened. This exact kind of situation happened a lot around Jesus' time. See, uh, you know, first century Palestine is ruled by the Romans, right? The Jewish people are not down with this, okay? And so there's a lot of other messianic movements before and after Jesus. People coming to the fore, Jewish leaders saying, hey, I'm the Messiah, follow me. We're going to revolt and throw off the Romans, and the Romans would come in and crush every, every single one of these movements, every single one, generally by executing the leader by crucifixion like they did with Jesus. And so what happens with these movements? Every single one falls apart with the death of its leader. They're all confined to the dustbins of history. They're just footnotes. We don't even really know much about them other than they just failed and died out, 
right? Except for the Christians. Except for the Christians. They're very weird. They keep on preaching and teaching and believing in their Messiah, even after he's been killed in front of everybody. Again, we're very used to this story, but put yourself back in that situation. This is a bizarre thing for a movement to do. Why do you persist after your Messiah has been killed in front of everybody? The question you have to ask yourself is, why would the church continue after the Messiah is publicly executed? Why would you do that if you were in that situation? Either they're just off the charts crazy, or they really did experience the resurrected Jesus after his death. And here's another, like, wrinkle in this whole story, too. This would have been so easy to disprove. If you were the, the Roman or Jewish authorities at that time, you could have disproved this so easily if you had the body of Jesus. Right? And they had every motive to do this. The, so the Romans and Jewish authorities, they collaborate to kill Jesus. They're hostile to this movement. So as soon as they start hearing these rumors of, like, he's not actually dead, he's around still, like, what, what's happening? Like, they could have shut that down if they had that body in a tomb somewhere. They could have rolled the stone away themselves, like, guys, I don't know what you're talking about, but that's not, that's not true. The body is still here. He's still dead. The fact that they didn't do that is very telling. And you might be surprised to hear this, but a lot of historians, the majority that study this stuff, this period in history, they'll tell you, it looks like they lost the body of Jesus. Like, they may not go, they might not say it was miraculous or supernatural. They're, they might just say, we don't know what happened. But it looks very likely like they lost the body of Jesus. Because it doesn't, the birth of the church just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense if they had the body in a tomb somewhere. They would have used that to disprove it. So let's keep going. Back to the creed here. Paul continues reciting. He says, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Uh, Cephas, that's the apostle Peter. That's his Aramaic name. Then to the twelve, that being the twelve disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. So what's Paul doing here? As he's reciting this creed, I like to imagine it as like he's like a lawyer in a court case, right? He's presenting his version of events, and he's going to appeal to different eyewitnesses to back up his claims, right? So he's starting to present some eyewitnesses to us. And I think this is some very, very strong eyewitness testimony for us to consider, and, and here's why. So he mentions uh, Peter and then the 12 disciples. All these guys, we know from history, uh, we should say the majority of these guys, most of these guys were executed for their faith. They all became martyrs for their faith in Jesus. So you have to ask yourself here, what would it take for you to die for belief? What would that take for you to do that? At the very least, I think you would have to be convinced your belief was true, right? Like you don't die for something you're kind of iffy on. Like, I think I saw the Jesus after he died. Maybe it's all a little hazy, but I don't know. I'm not sure. Like, that's not the disciples. The disciples were convinced 100%, and they put their lives on the line for this. And there wasn't, like, some ulterior motive to fabricate this. Like, if this was a conspiracy or a plot or some sort of scheme, it was a really stupid one. It's a really stupid, because the disciples don't gain anything from this, this plot, if that's what happened. They, they gained nothing but trial, tribulation, and, and ultimately death for their faith in Christ. So why'd they do this? Again, most of the historians that study this stuff will tell you, the disciples were really convinced they saw the resurrected Jesus. Now, it doesn't prove that it happened. That's some strong testimony. All 12 of these guys were willing to put their lives on the line for their belief in the resurrected Jesus. So something for us to consider. You can make up your own mind, but some strong testimony and then we have these 500 other brothers that Paul talks about, right? Jesus appears to them all at once. And that's a, that's a cool little detail that gets thrown in here, right? That means these are public appearances. And we hear about this in the, in the Gospels as well, right? 
Jesus appears to all the disciples at once, multiple groups of people. They can all see him, hear him together. They, they, they can touch him. Like, these are public, physical appearances. And that's, that's important because some people, again, would like to say, well, maybe the disciples just were, they were in such mourning and such grief over the death of Jesus. They just conjured up some, like, visions and some, like, you know, spiritual experiences of Jesus. And, and that's why they went out and did everything they did. And we know that kind of stuff happens, right? When people lose somebody, they experience some weird things. You've probably heard some stories like that, right? So that's known to psychology. People can get in that kind of strange state when they're mourning and grieving. So that's a theory that's out there. What Paul is saying here, again, cuts pretty harsh against that. He's saying this, he, Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. He appears, he appears to all the disciples at once. These are public appearances. And so these can't have been visions because a public vision is like a contradiction in terms, right? A hallucination is a hallucination because it's only happening to you. A mass hallucination is just, we just call that reality, right? So, when we look at it. So these can't have been private, just subjective visions, right? These are public appearances. That's what they're claiming. Another thing that's kind of cool to note here is Paul says, most of these guys are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep, that just means, that's, that's a euphemism for they've died. These guys have passed on. The implication here is you could go talk to these people. Paul's saying, like, hey, don't take my word for it. If you want to make the trip, you know, Corinthians over to Jerusalem, you can go talk to these people. They're still around. They're still doing their thing. Like, don't take my word for it. You could go fact check these sources that I'm giving you. Again, that kind of pushes back against that, that tall tale concept of, like, this took just a long period of time to kind of creep up and develop. Like, Paul's saying, no, this is in living memory. The generation that witnessed these things is still around. You go talk to them if you want to fact check me. So let's keep going. Paul continues the creed. He says this. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So uh, Paul's putting another eyewitness on the stand here. And this is a really, really cool one. I think a very strong eyewitness he's bringing up. Because this is James, the brother of Jesus. You have to ask yourself here, what would it take for you to believe your own brother was the son of God? That would take a lot for me. We'll get into that later. But that would take a lot, right? And James is not only a believer in the church, he's actually a key leader. You can read about him in Acts, everything he does. He becomes this really strong leader in the church. He's kind of one of the, the big three. It's like Peter, James, and Paul are like the big movers and shakers as the church is getting started. And not only that, but he, he ends up dying for his faith. We read about this, historians outside the Bible, Josephus talks about this. James, the brother of Jesus, dies for his faith. He's executed by the, the Jewish religious authorities. So, what would it take for you to believe in your own brother as the son of God? Um, I know a thing or two about brothers. I'm the oldest of five. Oldest of five brothers. And there is such a thing as sibling rivalry, all right? And I might be a little bit competitive. I might be kind of competitive. You can ask our youth pastor, Britt. We have like an unending rivalry on any and everything. It's extremely petty. And so actually next week, she's, she's preaching. So my mission right now is to make sure this message is better than hers. So you guys... You guys can be the judge on that. You can put a, we'll put up a poll or something. You guys can vote on it. So I'm, I'm very competitive. And it's the same thing with my brothers, right? I got to keep those guys in check. Got to keep them in line. I can't let them get one up on me, right? So as the oldest out of five, I like to remind them that I'm not only the oldest, I'm also the tallest, the strongest, the smartest, and the most handsome. <laughs> like, mom and dad got it right the first time. I'm not sure why they had all these other additions. Like, they could have stopped here. You know, there's a reason that the entire inheritance always went to the oldest son. It's because we're the best. Obviously, we should, should bring that back. Now, I'm kidding. 
I'm kidding. I love my brothers. They're all talented young men in their own ways. But here's, my point is this. I will never, ever, ever admit that my brothers are better than me at anything in any arena of life ever, right? They're my brothers. And I'm the oldest one. I got to keep them down, right? Like, even if it's true, I'm not going to admit it. Uh, many of you guys know my youngest brother, Curtis. He's, he's involved with youth culture around here. Yeah, he's a good kid. Give it up for Curtis. He's a good kid. But here's the thing. If Curtis, like, lost his arm and then grew it back, Wolverine style, I'd be like, Psh, whatever. Did that last week. Like, grow a leg back next time, man. Like, step it up. Like, I would not be impressed because he's my brother, and I'm not going to let him get one up on me, right? I can hardly imagine what it would take for me to believe in my brother Curtis as the son of God. I, I can hardly picture what that would take. It would have to be something like him being risen from the dead. It would have to be something on that level of evidence. And we see James and the other brothers of Jesus kind of go through this, right? At first, they're not bought in. During Jesus' ministry, like, they're skeptical. They're not, they're not all in on Jesus. In the Gospel of John, it says this, for not even his brothers believed in him. Talking about Jesus' brothers here. And this is interesting. Like, John puts this chronologically after, like, turning water into wine, some public healings that Jesus did after the feeding of the 5,000, like, some big, pub, big public stuff, and brothers are still skeptical. They're probably a little bit jealous, you know? You can hear them talking, like, man, big brother Jesus is getting real uppity with all this Messiah stuff. We gotta, like, keep him humble, man. Keep him in check. Something shifts, though. Something shifts for James and all the other brothers of Jesus. We see in uh, the first chapter of Acts, after Jesus has left earth, they're right there worshiping and praying with the other disciples. And then James, like, like we said, he goes on to do everything that he did for the church. He writes a book of the New Testament. Like, something flipped for him and the other brothers of Jesus. What was it? I think it's this moment that Paul was talking about, that experience of the risen Jesus, his own brother. That changed everything for James and the other brothers of Jesus. So that kind of marks the end of this, this formal creed that Paul presents but uh, again, the scholars tell me that it looks like Paul adds in his own little flourish here at the end. He's had this last line. He says this, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So this is a cool move that Paul does here. He puts himself on the witness stand, right? Puts himself on the stand and appeals to his own testimony. And in some ways, I think this might be the strongest testimony of all is Paul's. And here's why. Paul is a hostile witness to the resurrection. Paul is a hostile witness. And what do I mean by that? I mean, Paul didn't want the resurrection to be true when it happened. He did not want that to be true. Not, he's not like the other disciples. The other disciples followed Jesus for three, three and a half years or so. They're bought in. Like, of course they wanted to see Jesus alive again. Of course they're open to reports and rumors of that. They're probably a little bit biased. Paul is not. He's exactly the opposite. We see that Paul is actually the earliest and most passionate persecutor of Christians. You read about it, again, in, in Acts, the history of the early church. He oversees the, the stoning of the first Christian martyr, uh, Stephen. He's in charge of that. And then we get, he gets this certificate to go around arresting Christians and potentially having them executed. And it's on one of these journeys that we see Paul make this dramatic turnaround. It's a very famous moment. It happens in Acts 9. It says, As he neared Damascus on his journey... Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So just pause there. Saul is Paul. It's the same guy. God changes his name after this encounter, but, but same guy, all right? 
Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. So on this road to Damascus, Paul claims Jesus appeared to him in this moment. And we see from there on that Paul goes on to become arguably the world's greatest missionary. Like I said, he brings the gospel to Europe, brings the Gentiles into the Christian faith, writes most of the New Testament, and he gets nothing for any of his troubles. He gets nothing for this. He talks about this in 2 Corinthians, his next letter to this church. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And we actually see that Paul, like many of the other apostles and disciples we've talked about, will go on to be martyred for his faith. We see that in history that Paul was executed in Rome by the emperor. So Paul's bought in. Like this guy really believed this stuff. Now you can doubt what happened on that road to Damascus. You're within your intellectual rights there about what happened in that moment. Maybe it was just a strange vision. He ate something weird. I don't know. But he absolutely believed what he said he did. Like you cannot doubt the sincerity of his conversion. To kind of make this real for us, I think like the best modern analogy I could think of was, for Paul, was think of like a leader in, in ISIS, all right? Like a violent religious zealot who is passionate about killing heretics, killing infidels, killing Christians. That's what he's all in on, all right? So have that in your mind when you think about Paul. And then somehow this ISIS leader makes this 180-degree flip and becomes a Christian missionary. And then he's so hardcore about it, he eventually gets killed for it. That's the story of Paul. And again, you just have to ask yourself here, what would make a man do that? What would make a man do that? I think it's what he says here. He actually saw the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, but you can make up your own mind. So I hope I've given you some reasons to consider uh, the resurrection of Jesus as a historically evidenced event. Like, this isn't something you just have to take a blind leap of faith on. If this is something that that interests you or intrigues you, I encourage you, go out, do some research on this. Um, even as a Christian, I was just shocked at, like, the amount of scholarship and, that has gone into this question, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? I guarantee if you look into it, it's probably stronger than you think. It's probably stronger than you think. As a Christian, I didn't really get this. Uh, I kind of believed in this because, well, I believe in God and the Bible for other reasons, so I'll just accept that, that this is true. But actually, if you just look into this as an event, historical event in itself, the evidence is like, it's strong, guys. It's stronger than you think. So I encourage you to do some studying on this. This might be the most important question you face in this life, so it's worth a little, little homework. But now that I've argued for, you know, why we should maybe believe that this happened, this event, I want to talk about what does that mean? What does it mean if Jesus really did rise from the dead? And that's kind of where Paul goes in the rest of this chapter, so I'm just following his thinking here on a few points. So it means a few different things. One, if the resurrection is true, it means Jesus was who he says he was. It means Jesus was who he says he was. And see, Jesus, Jesus makes some bold claims, guys. Jesus claims to be the Son of God. 
claims to be the, the Lamb of God who's coming to forgive the sins of the world. He claims to forgive those sins himself. He accepts worship from people. Ultimately, he claims equality and unity with God himself. Jesus claims to be God. That's some bold stuff. And without the resurrection, I'm not sure why we should believe him. Like, he either is those things or he's not, which makes him a horrible liar. One of the worst false prophets in history, he's deceived billions of people into worshiping him. C.S. Lewis puts this point really well, and since no sermon is complete without a C.S. Lewis quote, here's mine. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Whew. Such a savage quote, man. That Lewis. He's right, though. Like, if Jesus was, either he was who he claims he was, or he's not, and we should probably get about as far away from him as we can. And see, the resurrection is the evidence that he has given the world that he was who he says he was. This is the evidence he gives the disciples to share with the world as the gospel. This is who I am. It's up to all of us whether ultimately we accept or reject that. Secondly, if the resurrection is true, it means our sins can be forgiven. Our sins can be forgiven. And Paul drives this point home for us later on in the chapter. Verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. See, Paul's saying here, look, the resurrection is the evidence that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for the atonement of sins. It's like the evidence that the check cleared, okay? If Jesus merely died and stayed dead, we would have no reason to think that his sacrifice as the Lamb of God was actually sufficient. We wouldn't have any confidence that our sins were actually forgiven. See, the resurrection shows that God the Father approves of God the Son's sacrifice on the cross. He shows that approval by raising him back to life. It wasn't enough that Jesus died for us, but with his resurrection, we have that confidence that his sacrifice was sufficient and our sins can be forgiven. Thirdly, if the resurrection is true, it means we have real hope for life beyond the grave. We can have real hope. Paul makes this point throughout the chapter. I'm just going to hit a few, few high points. Verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And later as he ends the chapter, he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? See, the resurrection shows that death itself has been defeated. And those of us who, push, uh, who put our faith in Christ, we've been promised to be raised again with Christ like he was. And this is that victory over death that all mankind longs for, right? We all want something like this to be true. And you'll hear people say things like this, right? They'll say, uh, you know, I believe in something after the grave. I don't know what, but I hope in something. Or when they lose somebody, you know, they'll say, I, 
You know, I believe I'll see them again one day. I don't know where or how or why, but I just have that feeling. I just feel like as Christians, we have something so much stronger than a vague hope, right? We have the witness of the church. We have the witness of the scriptures. The Old Testament predicts the coming of the Messiah for thousands of years. I didn't even get into the Old Testament prophecy angle of this, but that's a really cool angle on this whole section. Then you have the witness of the early church, right? It says, we saw this man come. We saw this Messiah come. He really died, and he really came back to life. And that's where our hope for life beyond, this, beyond the grave comes from. It's from that witness of the church and the scriptures. Something so much stronger than a vague hope that the world will try to give you. Lastly, if the resurrection is true, it means we live differently now. We live differently now. See, how you act in the present is based on your beliefs about the future, right? Paul makes this point kind of in the negative in this chapter. He says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What he's saying here is, look, if, if there is no resurrection, there's no afterlife, your best option, your most logical option is just to pursue, like, raw hedonism. Like, get all the pleasure you can, as fast as you can, however you can, right now, because you might be gone tomorrow, and this is it. This is it, guys. So maximize your pleasure, maximize your experiences right now, because that's all you've got. It's interesting. As, I think you can see this in people. As they lose faith in something more to come, or maybe they never had that faith, they turn more and more inward to selfish desires and pleasures, right? I, can, I think you can see that in whole cultures. Like our culture, for instance, I, think, I feel like as we've lost faith in something more to come, a confidence in a life beyond the grave, we're more and more desperate to just get pleasure now or sacrifice anything to get that pleasure now, maximize everything now, because we don't have that faith in something greater coming. But conversely, I think if you can hold fast to your faith in life beyond the grave, it enables you to be self-sacrificing, to be courageous, and to be obedient to God's call in your life, because we don't have to maximize it all right now. We have faith that there's more to come. We don't have to experience it all right now. We can sacrifice and work hard like Paul and the other apostles because we have this hope and something greater to come. As Paul ends the chapter, he drives this home. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You see, nothing that you do for God's kingdom is ever lost. Your labor is not in vain when it's done for God because his kingdom is eternal and only his kingdom is eternal. <laughs> to quote the movie Gladiator, your actions really do echo into eternity. And if the resurrection is true, not only do our actions have eternal consequences, we'll be there to witness those consequences. And so that gives us such importance and value to what we're doing right here, right now. It's only on, the base, on this basis that we have the ability to hold fast in the face of trials and struggle, and even in the face of death. Because see, all this gets really real when we have to face death ourselves, right? Or when we lose somebody. It's no longer just theories or conjecture or philosophy. When someone crosses this boundary from death to life that we all have to cross one day, there's a reality there, right? There's something or there's nothing. And so this question, did Jesus rise from the dead, becomes very pivotal, becomes very real. So as we wrap up today, I want to share the story of a couple in our church that, that faced this question, and they went on this journey, and they faced death together, and they're able to, to find a hope and a peace in the midst of that circumstance. 
So would you guys check out Megan and Chad's story? I met Chad in 2005 when he was stationed um, here with the Army. We were married in 2008. We had our son um, in 2009. Throughout my life, I had always considered myself a Christian. Chad did not. Um, he had some anger um, with God from when he was a kid. I started serving with First Impressions, and in the beginning, he, he kind of just tagged along with me, and, and sometimes he would just sit, like, in the back row next to me, um, you know, still there, but not, not really serving, and then it just kind of um, grew. He was, he was there, and we were there every week, and so he just, he's really good with people, so he was like, you know, I'll just, I'll give it a try, and then he started serving and was just a great people person, and um, I think that that really helped Chad grow and, you know, just sharing his, his kind of story with other people. Fast forward to 2016, um, Chad was diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, so he got the standard treatment for that, which is surgery, chemo, radiation. I think he just felt this hopelessness and, you know, he needed he needed somewhere to turn, so he started praying every day. He had his little journal. He, he had his specific time during the day when he would he would sit down and write in it. Um, his attitude changed completely, which was almost impossible to see. He just, um, you know, had this peace about him and acceptance. And in 2018, um, he asked me if I would get baptized with him. And so we did that at the big um, Easter service in Eagle River. It was almost like night and day with him. His heart was softened. He, he had always sort of had that tough kind of exterior before and, you know, like to kind of control everything. And it was, it was nice to see him give that control to, to God and just accept the plan had already kind of been made for him. And um, yeah, he just had a sense of peace that was, that was really good to see. March of 2021, his symptoms were really pretty bad at that time. We were told that um, it was now the, a grade four, which is pretty much, I guess, the worst that it could get. The church was really, really everything. Um, during that time, they, I mean, supported us. They brought us food. They they were in the hospital with us, so um, they were they were really helpful. Um, and then in August of 2021, he passed away. Um, that was very difficult. Um, but again, we just leaned on the church. later my son um, told me that he was he was still able to see the moments you know through all of our our hard times where where God was still there and he was ready to be baptized so um, Easter 
just like we were Easter of 2022, he was baptized. verse that has really resonated with me during all of this is um, Psalms 4610 um, and it says be still and know that I am God and I think you know just that it says I can be still like I don't have to have it all figured out right now and I can take the time I need because um, God already has it figured out um, that really helps because sometimes I feel like I, I constantly have to know you know, one day to the next, what I'm supposed to be doing. And so it just kind of gives me that assurance that, that I don't have to know that. There was a lot of days when I definitely didn't want to continue going to church. It was easier to just be at home and not have to be around people. But um, I, I think it's really been super helpful for not only my healing, for Jackson's healing. Um, it, it keeps us accountable. Um, and it really helps us grow, I think, in our walk with Jesus. Um, the community is has been everything to us. So, yeah, just being around people um, and feeling loved by them has been extremely helpful. Thank you, Megan, for sharing her story with us. Yeah. Very, very brave of her. See, in the church, we can mourn differently, right? We can mourn as those who have hope. I think Megan's story is a beautiful example of of that, a beautiful example of the church being the church and and showing that we can weep with those who weep, we can rejoice with those who rejoice because of our faith in Christ and his life beyond the grave. Paul says it like this in 1 Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, this is why the resurrection is so important, it's so key to everything we're about here. It's the basis of all of our hope. It's the reason we can persevere and experience peace and joy even in the face of tragedy, loss, grief, and death. So for our church, for ACF, the resurrection is what everything rests on. It's what holds everything together. It is the center of our faith. So as we close today, I want to give you some steps to take. One is you could begin a relationship with Jesus. If any of what I said is landing on you and you're realizing that if Jesus was who he says he was, he has a claim on my life. And I need to, I need to get into a right relationship with him. We want to help you on that journey. So you want to mark that box. We will uh, we'll get you some resources and help you take some steps as you begin that walk. Secondly, you could do some research on the resurrection. Like I said, this is the most important question I think you've got to answer in this life. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about him? And so it's worth doing some homework, doing a little study maybe doing a little hard work too see where you really land on this question but I encourage you to mark that if that's you today third you could deny yourself some pleasure for the sake of the kingdom maybe you're a Christian you're realizing yeah I've, I've like I've been indulging this thing it just has no eternal consequence or maybe it's just an outright sin especially if you struggle with an addiction I would really I would examine yourself and ask do I really believe in that life to come 
or, or, or am I letting this lie sneak in that this life is it and that's why I gotta get everything now, I gotta experience everything now, I gotta, I gotta have this pleasure now because I don't really believe in a life to come. So just ask yourself that question. Fourth, you can commit to laboring in the Lord. Maybe you just never made that connection between what I do now really has eternal value. I've never been intentional about that. Today can mark that turning point for you where you start to be intentional about your work for the kingdom of God. If you guys would though, let's stand up together. Let's pray as we close. Jesus, we thank you that you are alive. We thank you that you haven't left us alone in our sins or in our death. You are here with us in every moment, every struggle, every trial. Give us the faith to cling to you when the going gets rough. Give us the faith the apostles showed as they went forth into the world to spread your message. God, we pray for the person out here today who's been sitting on the fence, just wondering if you were real. I pray you would make yourself real to that person today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys.